0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 7. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word as we continue our series on the five solas of the Reformation. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen. Here in the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we pray this evening that you would be pleased to illumine our hearts and our minds uh, that as your word is preached, uh, it would not fall upon deaf ears and hard hearts, but that rather like seed planted in a wonderful soil, we pray, Lord, that your word would be planted in our hearts and would colonize our minds, and that it would transform our lives by your grace and spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Amen. Well, we return uh, to our study of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. These uh, five doctrines, as it were, make up the bread uh, and butter of uh, the Christian faith. Uh, these are foundational uh, points of doctrine for the followers of Jesus Christ, and and they help us to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If we uh, can settle on these important doctrines. A lot of things are covered here, and it it helps us to understand uh, some of the broad strokes of Scripture and helps to clear up some of the misunderstandings of uh, the doctrine of salvation that are out there uh, in our day and that have always been out there for centuries. These are non-negotiables. These are non-negotiables, the five solas uh, of the Reformation. Uh, And show me a place uh, where the Bible doesn't... uh, uh, ultimately, in any part of the Bible, emphasize these five solas. These five solas. We began, of course, with a general overview of the five solas and then uh, began with the actual uh, sola of Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, uh, Latin for Scripture Alone. Uh, the Bible alone is authoritative uh, for faith and practice. We live in a day. Uh, when the authority is not outside of us, it's within us. Uh, you can determine who you are. You can uh, claim to be something that you're not, and we're all supposed to nod our heads and say, yes, that's the case. But uh, it's, it's the Bible. It's the word of God that's the ultimate authority. It's not our own word. It's not our own feelings. It's not even oppressive Uh, governments or totalitarian uh, leaders or warlords, they may think that they have all the authority, but the ultimate authority is in the hands of God, and His Word is authoritative for faith and practice. That's why we preach it in this church. It's why uh, whenever I'm away, those who fill this pulpit preach the Word of God with authority, not from their own authority, but because it is the word of God that is authority. It's why we say, thus saith the Lord. Because God's word is inspired by God, or theonoustos, God-breathed, and inerrant, that is, without error, and sufficient, we ought to be intentionally and consistently submitted to it as a church and as individuals and families. Well, then, of course, we looked at solus Christus, Christ alone, Uh, So the the, the word of God is authoritative, alone for faith and life and practice. Uh, Salvation is through Christ alone and not through any other plan, not through any other person, not through any other religion. Acts chapter 4, and verse 12, lucidly states that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. It is solely through faith in the person and redemptive work of Christ that a person can be forgiven and receive eternal life. Now, as we walk through these, as we walk through these, we are mindful of the fact that not everybody believes this. In fact, we have many friends, co workers, family members, neighbors, acquaintances that would essentially respond to these kinds of claims as being narrow, as being perhaps bigoted in some way, of being unloving. How can you say this? How can you say that Jesus is the only way? You know what my response is to that? I'm not saying that. The Word of God is saying that. I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that, and I'm repeating what He said because I believe it. It's God's Word and it's important that we re- remember to lead people back to this in love as we engage people in evangelism as we share the gospel with them as we talk about these truths you know and there are ways of course to help people to understand that it's not just Christians who have these uh, kinds of ultimatums and 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 narrow views in fact if you start uh, walking down uh, in a conversation with people, you'll realize that they, too, have these things. They just are oftentimes based upon their own feelings or their own thoughts about things. Well, you know, it just what really matters is sincerity. Well, what if someone, and I, I shared this, actually, in Delhi, India, many years ago, as uh, some, some Hindu friends were challenging me on the... the uh, Uh, the uh, Christ being the only way of salvation. They said, you know, we have millions of gods in India. And are you going to say that they are all false gods? I said, well, again, the Bible says that they are all, the Bible says that, uh, you know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I said, and actually it makes sense to me that there would be a God who created the world rather than uh, millions of gods who all have these strange personalities and and mythical aspects to them. So there's that. But then I said, well, how about this? And I I actually took off my shoe. I was teaching a classroom full of about 40 high school students in Delhi, India. And I took off my shoe and I put it on the top of the desk. And I said, now, what if I declared that this is going to be the next idol that's going to be added to the panoply of idols? This shoe. It's going to be the shoe religion and they all kind of chuckled and i said why are you laughing i said why can't i declare this shoe to be a god and how many people have to worship the shoe before it becomes an official religion or respected and of course they began kind of looking like i don't really know what to say to that i don't know what to say to that and so we had a lot of good uh, interesting conversation but what it comes down to when, it, when, we, when we talk about these things, dear ones, is we refer people to God's word because we're not trying to prove God's existence when we evangelize people. What we recognize is that every... Sing- Let me ask you this. Do you believe that every single person is made in the image of God? Okay, I hope so, because the Bible says that. If every person is made in the image of God... It means, as Calvin says, that we all have the seed of religion within us. That every person is made in the image of God. Now, that image is shattered and broken because of sin, but it's there. And it's why Paul can say in Romans 1 that no one is without excuse. Because God has created the world. And deep down inside, every single person knows that God exists and they are accountable to him. Now, there's a lot of confusion there. Yes, sin has darkened the mind, hardened the heart, corrupted the affections, all of that. Yes, but the fact remains. And so when you evangelize, when you share the gospel with people in your classroom, at the lunchroom, in, your, uh, in, in the break room, uh, in, in line at the grocery store, uh, a family member at Thanksgiving dinner, whatever, you evangelize them, you share the gospel with them with the knowledge that they are made in the image of God and that deep down they know God is true. And so you share the gospel with them with that confidence of knowing that if the Spirit works in their life, they will come and they will believe this gospel that you share with them. And, but we have to be willing to share it. We have to be willing to get it out there. And so Christ is the only way of salvation. We don't need to be embarrassed to say that or nervous to say that. He is the way. He is the truth. By the way, there are those who are bringing the wildest, craziest, irrational ideas to the marketplace, to the culture, and they are doing it with boldness and courage and forthrightness and zeal and passion. And it's, it's thing, things that are clearly ludicrous. And here we have the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Are we willing to... To share that with boldness and courage and love, even as those are passionate about propagating lies. Solus Christus, Christ alone, is the Savior. How about sola gratia? Salvation is by grace alone, not because of any goodness or, or morality inherent in us. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. We cannot save ourselves. It is by grace alone that we are saved. Uh, we learned last time that our natural condition as sinners is worse than we think, and the grace of God is better than we would ever realize. Man can be saved only through God's grace in Christ. This evening, we come to Sola Fide, and next time, God willing, we'll come to Soli Deo Gloria. Sola Fide, faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by good works. It's not by any merits that we can offer, because faith is itself a gift from God. And so we come to this fourth sola, sola fide, Latin for faith alone. And our text is Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 3, 7 through 9. This this passage demonstrates... What it means to be justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Look with me now at verses 7 and 8. And the point here, uh, my point here is all things rubbish, a glance at mankind's bad works. All things rubbish, a glance at mankind's bad good works. In the book of Isaiah... Uh, We learned that even our good works are bad good works when carried out apart from true faith. This is a very important concept as it concerns faith. Every work that we do apart from saving faith is a corrupt, a bad, a poisoned good work. Because it's a good work done apart from faith in Christ and a, a, a right standing with God. And so what the Bible declares this in Isaiah 64, 6, is that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Now, um, I hope this doesn't affect your dinner tonight. But what this is communicating to us when it, when it says all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, this is really speaking about a leprous person and the, the rags that go around the wounds, the open wounds filled with pus and blood and are infected. And the, the rags that go over these uh, leprous sores are what Isaiah say represent our good works apart from true saving faith. Good works done by a believer who possesses saving faith are not like those. Okay, understand that. Those good works please God. And they are sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do good works united to Christ, those good works are pleasing to God. But apart from true faith in Christ, our good works are like filthy rags. so you picture our good works, mankind's good works, apart from Christ, as being like the rags on the sores of lepers. It's not a pretty sight. And we are indeed spiritual lepers apart from the cleansing blood of Christ. Understand that, dear ones. If you are not tonight united to Christ by grace through faith, every good thing that you do, apart from faith in Christ, apart from a right standing with God. It's like you are trying to give God good works instead of trusting Christ for your salvation. You're saying, no, I don't need Christ. I don't need to, to be united to Christ and to surrender my life to him. I'm just going to offer my good works. But what you are offering are leprous, filthy rags in the place of Christ. We are... Naturally, spiritual lepers, dead in our transgressions and sins, corrupted in our affections, darkened in our minds, hardened in our wills and hearts. And our only salvation is found in Christ alone. But let's see what Paul has to say about his good works after he was converted, what he thought about his good works prior to conversion. Uh, Look with me again here at verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. So this is Paul. He's speaking of himself prior to conversion as, as a Pharisee. And he begins to say, oh, and he's basically speaking to the Pharisees and saying, oh, you think you have reason to boast? Let me share with you my pedigree, my curriculum vita, my resume. Let me share with you my spiritual resume before I met Christ. I was circumcised on the eighth day following Jewish law of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a special tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he kept the law. He, he, he thought he was keeping the law, but outwardly he was keeping the law. He would have been a model to fellow Jews, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But here's the thing. Again, Paul did not place his faith in God. He placed his faith... In his religious pedigree, in his good works, which in and of themselves were bad good works, leprous rags. Because rather than believe God for his promise of salvation through his son, who is the only one who is worthy uh, to uh, purchase our salvation, to pay for our salvation, he was trusting in his his own works. His own tradition, his family line, his education, his adherence to the ceremonial law. He was depending on his self-righteousness to save him. Now, you say, well, I can't believe Paul did this. Who would do this? Well, so many would do it, even, even those who profess to be Christians. Christians today will... Sometimes unwittingly, sometimes very purposefully, put their confidence and their faith not in Christ alone, through faith alone, but rather in their family. They say something like this when you ask them that they were Christians. Well, yes, my parents were strong Christians and I have been a Christian my whole life, they say. There's nothing of the person and finished work of Christ in their conception of what it means to be a believer. Some would answer by saying, well, I have a Christian heritage. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm from the South, they say. Or maybe there's, there are those who have a great knowledge of Scripture. And so that's where their faith lies, and their own confidence about their knowledge of the Bible and Bible stories and, and, and a sense of Christian morality. And so they put their faith in that. Or perhaps they have a zeal for morality, a zeal for, you know, political gains and for things to be better in America and these kinds of things. But this, this is not true faith. For some, their passions for these things are over and above or perhaps totally in place of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this shows where their hope rests. The question is, dear one, where does your hope rest? Look what Paul does here. The very things that Paul valued most in his life. Please hear this. The very things that Paul valued most in his life, things that he thought made him acceptable to God, were those things that after meeting and knowing and receiving Christ as his Lord and Savior, he considered loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. You see, when Christ entered Paul's life on the road to Damascus, his life could never be the same. He wasn't just knocked off of his literal horse to the ground. He was knocked off of his self-righteous hobby horse. And all the things that he was putting his hope and his trust in, they were all taken out from under him. And that's what happens when you meet Jesus. You realize that all those things in the end mean nothing And it's why as Christians, we ought to always hold everything that we have and everything that we are with an open hand. I am what I am by the grace of God, full stop. I have what I have because of the grace of God, full stop. We take no credit. We do not boast. And if we ever do, we repent for that foolishness. When Christ entered Paul's life on the road to Damascus, his life changed. All of a sudden, the things that Paul held up in highest esteem, the things that he spent all of his time pursuing and promoting were loss in comparison to knowing, pursuing, and promoting Jesus Christ. But not only were those things a loss in comparison to Christ, But what we see here as well is that what was most highly valued, he now considered rubbish. And actually, rubbish is a bit of a euphemized word. Uh, The word there, skubala in the Greek, is, is dung, dung, waste. Paul makes this almost shocking statement. That the very things he considered important in life, which probably include his religious status, his self-righteousness, his material possessions, his own physical comfort and well-being, he considered dung in comparison to knowing Christ or, as our passage states, so that he may gain Christ. Here's the point. When Paul met Jesus, his perspective on life radically changed. And this is something that we ought to consider, all of us, as we consider our lives, the things that the Lord has given to us, the things that the Lord has in front of us, the possibilities, the potential. We need to remember these things, that Paul's perspective on life radically changed when, by grace through faith, he received Christ as his Lord and Savior, has our perspective on life radically changed. Is it changing? Is it sanctification? No longer did Paul place on a pedestal his own moral accomplishments or his worldly attainments or his possessions or his comfort or his safety, but rather, as it were, he threw all of those things down and boasted in one thing, Christ Christ. Praying for those who continue to hold this wicked understanding of placing their own righteousness in place of God's righteousness, Paul states in Romans 10, 2 and 3, quote, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And that is surely the problem, is that people don't understand. They've never heard. Perhaps friends of ours have never heard from us that there is a standard of righteousness that is a perfect standard because God is righteous and His law is righteous. And he cannot be but righteous or just, or he would not be God. And our only way to be saved from the righteousness and wrath and justice of God is by having that righteousness, which is ours, of course, by grace through faith in Christ. Paul, by sovereign grace, realized that his own good works did not measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. There had to be another way. There had to be another way, because in himself, Paul realized that he fell short of God's glory. This way, of course, was accomplished in Christ, who on behalf of his people carried out that perfect life, fulfilled that life of righteousness for us, and then was crucified for our sin, and then rose from the dead on the third day, thus accomplishing our redemption and offering us life, earning for us life and eternal joy. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ and all the benefits of his saving work that we have been speaking of are received in one way. Through what? Faith. Through faith. Someone might ask, how is it That I receive what Christ offers to me through what he has done 2,000 years ago. How does that work apply to me? How does it get to me? The answer is through the instrument of faith. I want to read from the larger catechism, question 72. What is justifying faith? What is justifying faith? Question 72. Answer, justifying faith is a saving grace. It's a saving grace. Wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. This is so important. Faith is a gift of God. It is wrought in the heart of a sinner. It is created in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word working together. This is why, as a side note, as I was asked before the service, and I've been asked it many times in the last couple of weeks, Pastor, what do you think about this revival, so-called, going on on college campuses around the country? And while I in no way want to... uh, say that the Lord is not at work in some way, and I'm always happy when college students are praying and singing God's praise. Of course, praise the Lord for that. And we don't know what the Lord's doing in that. But when it comes to true and lasting revival, and when it comes to true conversions, sound conversions, and people becoming mature disciples and true disciples, there must not just be singing and praying. There must be what? Preaching. The faithful preaching of the gospel, which I have heard many reports is not happening in this so-called revival. I'm happy for Christian students to be singing and praying and talking about Jesus. But unless there is the preaching of the word of God, faith will not be wrought in the hearts of the elect. Because faith is wrought in the hearts by the spirit and the word. And preaching is what God is pleased to use to save his people from their sins faith is the humble instrument by which god will transform his save and transform his people and so it's wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of god whereby he being convinced that is the sinner being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition So this is what's happening for there to be true faith. There must be uh, a, a being convinced of one's sin and misery and that no one in the world can recover him out of this lost condition, not only a sense to the truth of the promise of the gospel. In other words, he doesn't just say, oh, yeah, that's true, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin. And for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. And so, salvation is not just an assenting, true faith isn't just an assenting to God's truth. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's when God is holding out Christ, and by grace, you receive him and all the benefits that are yours in him. That is justifying faith. It it brings about the pardon for sin and the accepting and accounting of his person as righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Those who have true and saving faith, which is a gift from God, receive all of what Christ has given to them. In Christ, you are forgiven of your sins, you are accounted as righteous, and you stand before God justified. True and saving faith. That is justifying faith so this faith is important to understand look at verse 9 with me in our text and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith sola fide It's a salvation that comes through faith and that depends on faith. Faith in faith? No. Faith in one's spiritual performance? No. Faith in a denomination? No. Faith in a church leadership? No. Faith in a family heritage? No. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, the one who saves us from our sins. And so Martin Luther wrote this, that faith is the article, or justification, rather, is the article by which the church stands or falls. John Calvin wrote, it's the principal hinge on which Christianity turns. We are justified through faith. We are justified through faith. And so the source of justification is grace. The basis of justification is Christ. The channel of justification is faith. It's the channel of justification. We are saved by grace through faith. It's through faith that we rest upon the person and finished work of Christ for our Salvation, and so here we see the importance of understanding these five solas of the Reformation. It helps bring these things together for us. It helps us to understand our great salvation. I want to give you three facts now concerning saving faith. First of all, we've mentioned it already. I'm going to do these quickly. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Ephesians two eight and nine, Hebrews twelve three. Christ is the author of faith. He's the finisher of faith. Faith is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Secondly, faith is an instrument. Faith is an instrument. Notice with me in our text that it is through faith or on the basis of faith that we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument or the receptacle that God gives to us in order that the redemptive work of Christ can be applied to us, can be given to us, can be accounted to us by the Spirit. It's important to recognize faith in this way, and we exercise this faith like a muscle by looking to Christ, by resting in Christ, by abiding in Christ through the means of grace. Faith is a gift. Faith is an instrument, and faith is living. Faith is living. It grows and becomes stronger. James talks about dead faith. Dead faith. Uh, That's a, a faith without works. True faith. True faith bears the fruit of good works. And, of course, the first good work that faith always uh, 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 sets forth is the work of clinging to Christ. And, of course, all of this is by grace, lest any man should boast. Faith is living. It grows. It becomes stronger. And the alternative is dead faith, which is no faith at all. Of course, we have considered before the three features of saving faith or the nature of saving faith. I I don't want to um, uh, cover this this evening uh, in any long length of time because I think recently in the Roman series I covered this. But, But faith is composed of three things. Knowledge of the truth, first of all. Knowledge of the truth. Then belief that that truth is true and then commitment or devotion to that truth. First of all, knowledge of the truth. I once read uh, uh, a story of a man who was being interviewed by a group of men uh, who were elders, and this person was becoming an elder, and so he's being interviewed. And they asked him what he believed about salvation, and he replied to them that he believed what the church believed. They probed a little more. What else does the church believe? The church believes what I believe, he answered. At this stage, the elders were getting a little exasperated, but they tried again. Just what do you and the church believe? The man thought over his answer for a couple of moments and then answered, we believe the same thing. That is not good enough. We need not just to believe our confession, give mental assent to it, as our confession says. There must be more. We must believe that that knowledge is true. We don't just believe the gospel in our minds, but we believe that it's actually true. There are plenty of people who have a vast knowledge of the Bible and yet do not believe it to be true. Would this not be true of those who are in mainline Christian denominations, who have been capitulating to the false dogma of the world, the moral revolution, the sexual revolution, the woke revolution. Seminaries are filled with brilliant men and women who know the Scriptures backwards and forwards, but who do not believe it to be true. So it's not just having a knowledge of the truth, but we must believe that that knowledge of the gospel is true. Finally, we must have a commitment to the truth. If we don't have that, we just, if we just know the gospel and we believe that the gospel is true, that's not even what composes saving faith. There must be devotion to the truth, commitment to the truth. The devil himself knows the Bible well and quotes it to Christ when he tempted him in the desert. The devil also believes the Bible to be true. He has been in the presence of God. He knows God's purposes will come to pass. There are no doubts in his mind that God is in ultimate control of all things. And so James is trying to teach his readers that faith is more than just knowledge and mental assent to a bunch of propositions. He says, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So faith must be more than just knowledge, more than just belief. Although these things are necessary, faith must also at its core have a commitment to it. And again, when God gives the gift of faith, then there is that response of commitment because that person has been made alive in Christ. Well, prior to his encounter with Christ, the Apostle Paul trusted in his own goodness and religion and position to save him. Little did he know, little did he know prior to meeting Christ that his own goodness was like filthy rags mixed and mingled with his own sinfulness and corruption. When he, by grace through faith, received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, everything changed. Suddenly, his priorities changed, and things that were most precious to him were like rubbish, like dung in comparison to knowing Christ, to gaining Christ and to getting to know him more and more. And so, as we close, I want to say that if you're here this evening, uh, perhaps visiting, perhaps you've been coming from some time, and you don't have true and saving faith, you may be asking, what am I supposed to do, Pastor? What am I supposed to do? The answer is, by grace, repent of your sin and look to Christ for salvation, Look to Christ for forgiveness. Look to Christ for perfect righteousness, which will make you have a right standing with God so that you too will be justified and adopted into God's family. Faith is a gift. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Turn from your sin. Turn from your life where you've been putting your trust in all of these other things. And with Paul say, all of these things are loss. And dung in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who lived and died and rose again for me. What if you are a believer? How do you respond to this text on Sola Fide? Well, examine your life. Examine your life. Have you wandered perhaps away from this Pauline attitude of seeing all things as dung? We all, we all. Can grow in this area, of course, because we all are in the process of sanctification. But perhaps our hearts have been drawn towards the world. We've been we've been distracted. Our, our our faith has become blurry and foggy because the things of the world have become more and more attractive to us. The siren calls of the world have been calling us and we've been answering, perhaps. Are we still counting all things to be lost and dung in comparison to knowing Christ? What are the things that are displacing the preeminence of Christ in our lives? Self righteous pride, material possessions, the hope for material possessions, status, ambition at work, entertainment, idols, family. For Paul, all of these things were counted as loss in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, being found in him, being found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God that depends on faith. The hymn writer Put it this way, Christ paid the price to set me free. His blood poured out on Calvary's tree. Now nothing as my own I'll call, for all is Christ's and Christ my all. All merit, boasting, set aside. By faith alone I'm justified. Before the throne I take my place and rest in God's amazing grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, a grace that has saved us through the gift of faith, that instrument through which we receive and rest upon Christ alone and his righteousness for our salvation. And, O Lord, we pray that we would be a people, a church that is committed to sola scriptura, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fida, all For the sake of soli deo gloria, for your glory alone. O Lord, even now as we sing and come to your table, would you feed us and stamp upon us afresh your name, your love, your grace, and strengthen us as we come to the table, repenting of our sin and looking to Christ, clinging to Christ alone for our salvation, even as he holds us with a strong hand.